Thanks for downloading show 99 of the C-Suite podcast, the first of two episodes that we're recording in partnership with CFA UK with some of the speakers from their FinTech Forum 2020. Uh, Now, the event itself was meant to have taken place in London in March, uh, but as a precautionary measure and to minimise the risk of the coronavirus, uh, CFA UK took the decision to cancel the event. However, they weren't prepared to let COVID-19 beat the podcast, and so we have agreed to go ahead as planned, but instead record all our interviews online. Line. Uh, my name is Russell Goldsmith and I'm going to be chatting to a number of the industry experts that were due to present at the forum, which whilst tailored to the asset management sector, we're confident it will be of interest to all listeners who are keen to understand how to stay ahead as financial technologies change. Uh, the closing keynote of the conference was going to be Richard Davis, Group Chief Operating Officer of Revolut, who was due to be interviewed on stage by Holly Black, who is the Senior Editor of Morningstar. Well, I'm delighted to say that they have agreed to record their interview for us online and have joined me now. So welcome to you both. Um, Holly, I'll hand over the hosting honours to you for this first section of the show. Thanks very much, Russ. And uh, thank you for joining us today, Richard. So I don't know if you want to start off just telling us a little bit about what Revolut is and what you guys do. Sure. Great to be here, Holly. Thanks for having me. So Revolut was launched in 2015 by our founders, Nick and Vlad. And I guess very much originally was centered around offering a pretty unique multi-currency wallet, as well as card that really help people to save a lot of money if they're doing any international travel or international payments. And since then, we've really developed the business into quite a lot of different areas. Uh, For example, uh, cryptocurrency, stock trading, as well as quite a number of new countries. So Europe-wide and a number of other places like Australia and Singapore. So pretty, pretty rapid expansion from the initial roots. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy as well in such a short period of time, but that seems to be the upward trajectory when people get, get it right these days. What do you think are the biggest challenges for a fintech startup? So I think there's masses of opportunity out there. The challenge is always having the people to realise the opportunity. So talent does everything ultimately, whether it's, building great software, or whether it's good risk management, whether it's great ideas, it's great design, all of that comes down to people. So while we are completely a technology company in financial services, ultimately it's about great people. And obviously you've already moved into a number of different areas, but is there scope for further expansion? What do you think are the big opportunities in the sector? So the vision is to be Uh, super app essentially be a platform for all the financial services needs of our customers we're obsessed around customer value and customer experience and so we think if we can provide that platform that gives you just really easy access to all of the financial services you need and all of that's done in a great experience way but but really importantly also a great value way then that should be a winning formula I mean, you see Amazon do some of that, I guess, over the last uh, 20 years, pretty impressively, where they move from books into quite a range of other verticals, underpin that with Amazon Prime, and throughout that, a real sort of good customer experience and great customer value driving driving the sort of DNA of the company. So 
similar sort of philosophy of trying to provide that super app, that platform for financial services with great value and great experience underpinning it. Mm. And obviously we've had quite a, a few high profile fintechs over the last few years. Do you think there'll be some consolidation in the industry as these businesses start to mature? I think that's pretty natural that you have a cycle and I think we render the first wave of fintech cycle where I remember I first got involved in fintech back in 2013 uh, and I guess a lot of innovation often emerges from a crisis and you had a pretty major crisis 10 years ago so and so you did get that real wave and then as a maturing of that wave and that must mean that some will get to be really big and some will fall by the wayside or be bought and, and so on so I think we've seen a bit of that in the last few months both in Europe as well as the US, as you've seen some people fold and some people consolidate, as well as some people raise some pretty large funding rounds to, I guess, be those really big players of the future. Mm. I mean, you talk about that catalyst for the current wave being the financial crisis. And I think one of the big things that came out of that was a loss of trust in some additional banks. But I mean, I think people are relatively cautious when it comes to their money and who they will hand it over to. So as a new business, how do you get customers trust? Yeah, trust is absolutely essential in financial services. So something we take really seriously. I mean, we essentially have two main pieces to our business today. The first piece is regulated under e-money requirements, which means that we uh, safeguard all of our clients' money uh, with very, very large global banks to ensure it's, it's fully protected from that point of view. Then a piece I guess we are seeking to increasingly trans- transition to is uh, fully deposit-insured bank accounts uh, under full bank regulation. And, and we think both forms give very good customer protection. But I think there probably is a wider perception in the market that the the sort of full banking regulation, the deposit insurance is the, the sort of uh, the target state you should aim for. And that, that's very much something we are aiming for. And I think that what underpins all of that is, is really strong risk management, really strong regulatory compliance that, that ensures you are delivering on all of your obligations and you're managing the business safely. And it strikes me that one of the big challenges for disruptors in this space is this um, apathy towards switching providers so even if we say we hate our bank we can't really be bothered to do anything about it and you hear about the so-called mistress phenomenon where people will take out an account with a with a new bank but it's their secondary account it's not where they're getting their main wage paid into or where the direct debits are coming out of how can you overcome that do you think listen i've worked in a number of banks and i think the general inertia in financial services is, is really high. I think the thing that is staggering in Revolut is the n- amount of customer demand and amount of customer uptake that we see without that much marketing. And I won't quote specific figures because it would probably embarrass some of my, <laughs> my, my former colleagues, but yeah, you look at sort of the accounts opened per day from a traditional institution and, and Revolut, it, it's sort of 20, 30, 40x what Revolut's achieving. So there is a really strong customer demand there. Now, your point about is it primary, is it secondary? To us, what we really care about is how much do customers use us? What's the activity level? Is it only twice a year when they're on holiday? Or is it daily, weekly? I think that's the transition we're we're really seeking to drive because if the customer is using you all the time, 
then they really like your product. And actually from a revenue point of view, uh, we don't charge customers very much. We do make money off, for example, interchange fees or other elements that sit in the background. So that sort of daily and weekly activity is very important to us. Um, and, and I guess some of the behavior, for example, I, I see in some of my old colleagues is that they will actually use Revolut for their day-to-day -day, um, spending, but they'll be transferring 400 quid a week in from another account. And actually that's a pretty good place to be because actually the engagement sits with us. So you're then of a question of what actually even is your primary account. I think you get to kind of using traditional definitions doesn't even work anymore. But yeah, I think the key question in there, and so I think the, the, the battleground for me is customer engagement rather than arbitrary definitions of primary and secondary accounts. Yeah, definitely. Um, so obviously the banks have been quite slow off the mark, the traditional banks, in, in coming up with anything to challenge the challengers. Do you, do you think they could stage a comeback? Because we saw, I guess, Goldman Sachs create its Marcus account and a few others are sort of dabbling in the space, but have they left it too late? I've, I've tried to change incumbents from the inside. Um, and there's some great people working there. And it's hard that you've got multiple forces that are hard. One is the one that's always talked about, which is legacy technology. And that definitely hurts. Then you've got, I'd say, skill sets. And one of the things I notice a lot about Revolut is just the, the degree of technical skill set, the data skill set. It, it is really chalk and cheese to uh, other places I've worked in, in, in incumbents. Then I probably also point to a key factor people don't often talk about, which is PL. I mean, a lot of disruption is driven off customer value, as I mentioned earlier. That's core to what we do. And it's very hard if, say, on a retail customer, you're charging 3% markup on any international payment. You might be making a few hundred million pounds of revenue. So Revolut doesn't. Very hard to suddenly sort of cut your arm off if you're the incumbent to lose that few hundred million pounds of revenue. Uh, I think his management's incentives are typically driven around sort of single year P&L performance. So there's quite a number of forces that are hard to, to work with to, to really fight back against the challenges. Equally, there are huge advantages that large banks have on, on balance sheets. So when it comes to things like I don't know, mortgage lending, uh, I think people like HPC are extremely well positioned because they've got super low cost of funds, super low cost of capital, and therefore you see them currently dominating the mortgage market. So uh, in fact, almost they're challenging some of the other people in the mortgage market right now. So it, it sort of all depends on which bit of the, the FS market you look at uh, as to which bits are under threat for the incumbents and which bits are not. And I wouldn't want to pretend that absolutely everything's under threat right now, but yeah, I think that's all core digital day-to-day -day current account and associated sort of activities is definitely under threat right now. Well, I suppose that's a key point as well, isn't it? You guys have come along and disrupted the incumbents. So how do you stop yourself being disrupted by the next wave of disruptors? There's a phrase that Jeff Bezos uses, which also our CEO Nick uses, which is, it's got to always be day one. Uh, there's some great letters that Jeff Bezos has published around this topic, and it's all about, I think it's the phrase is something like, if, it, if you come day two, then you're on a sort of slow journey towards paralysis and death over time because you've lost the spark that keeps the business innovating 
and trying to provide great things for customers. And so I think there's a lot there about mentality that means you've got to have that continued drive. I mean, we call it never settle in our values. So that passion you want to see in people to keep making things better as opposed to just ever rest on your laurels and cruise along. And I think that culture is, is super important. And I suppose one thing that can help with that is managing to harness the huge data sets that you get. Are you able to share with us some of the sort of most interesting insights that you've been able to get from data and how that's informed the business? So data is core to what we do. I mentioned earlier about skill set. And for example, when we recruit people, we, we insist on a home task for all roles. So I've done it, which is pretty heavy data analytical. And we'd find the pass rate for a lot of people coming from traditional backgrounds might be quite low on that because there's an insistence that people have sufficient technical skills and think in a data-driven manner. Uh, I think that allows you therefore to embed data throughout the business rather than just having niche teams doing it, which a lot of companies have. And so therefore, is there a specific insight? I'm not sure there is. For me, it's, it's the fact it's everywhere. And I'll probably also say the fact that we don't over therefore use the buzzwords of today, the sort of People always talk about AI and machine learning and very few people can actually explain what it is. And I think often people use, they do sort of data theater, AI theater, where they, they do some like niche project with some highly skilled data scientists, but it doesn't really have business-wide impact. So I'd say we, we're trying to embed data throughout the business to a really strong working level. And then it's about how do you, how do you step that up to the, the more advanced techniques where it really makes a difference. So, I mean, for example, one of the things we do do is we have internal uh, machine learning algorithms that look at users' photos. So that, for example, if uh, someone's trying to onboard and the person that's onboarding matches an existing user, you know it's a duplicate user, or potentially it's a, a bad actor you've caught in the past and you don't want to re-onboard re them having offboarded them. Or for example, they're looking to, uh, someone's trying to change their device. And is it actually a social engineering attack where someone's trying to take over someone's account? Or is it the actual person? Again, that sort of uh, machine learning for uh, image recognition and comparison, uh, many, many use cases for that. So yeah, so I, I could go on about this forever because it's, it's sort of, it's everywhere. So it, the great thing for me is there isn't just one insight because it is actually embedded at the heart of the business. And it's definitely the only place I've worked where I can say that. I mean, you hit on an important point there, I think, with the social engineering one. I mean, that cybersecurity, that is a problem with all this data. How much of a threat on a sort of day-to-day -day or, you know, priority is that for you guys? Yeah, listen, as a tech company, it's really critical. We, we are digital only. So security of digital is critical. And I think there's, there's multiple vectors to that. I mean, we use some of the biggest, most globally recognized cloud hosting providers to provide us with security from a, a, our own infrastructure and data point of view. But we clearly also have an in-house information security team that's, that's highly skilled. And then we care a lot about uh, if customers are being taken advantage by social engineering, which is probably the most common vector that the bad guys use, because it's kind of easier to social engineer individual people than it is to hack whole systems of a company. And, and I think that's something where the whole industry is continuing to try and educate customers 
as well as trying to put in place the best possible controls to protect customers. And there's always a bit of friction there as well, because the more controls you put in place, again, you can really uh, damage the customer experience, and the ease of use. So I don't, I don't think anyone's perfectly solved this, but it's certainly something uh, I'd observe we've spent huge amounts of time on over the last few months trying to get that really strong balance of, of customer education, of controls from our side, um, as well as customer experience. Super. Well, Richard, thank you so much for your time today. It's been fantastic. Great. Thank you for having me. Back to you, Russ. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for doing that. Really appreciate uh, you both coming online uh, to record that today. Thanks so much. Next to join me is Nikola Chuparov, a co-founder and CEO of Moneyfold, who was due to speak on the topic of blockchain and cryptocurrency. Uh, Nikola, um, perhaps we can start with some definitions. Uh, sure, and thank you for having me, Russell. So the way I describe this is we have DLT, uh, Distributed Ledger Technologies, which is an umbrella term capturing many different types of technologies. And under that umbrella sits uh, blockchain. Which, uh, which was created about 12 years ago with, with the Bitcoin, but now has evolved into much, much more. And the idea behind blockchain is that you have this open permissionless system that anybody can join, and, and, and I mean anybody globally, and it helps us to, to agree on who owns what, who owns which part of uh, digital uh, real estate. And, and additionally, when we send some digital tokens from one person to another, uh, and these tokens could represent something of value. They could represent some, some uh, instructions to, to, to do something. When all that happens, how do we coordinate that? How do we all agree after it's happened who, who owns what? And, and this is what public permissionless blockchains help us to achieve. And so what's the vision on how this should uh, sit within the investment industry? So there are multiple competing visions. Uh, the current uh, popular D DeFi, uh, decentralized finance. So the, the, the crypto DeFi vision is that you have these uh, unregulated instruments sitting completely outside of the financial system and that people are using them to, to invest, to earn interest, to speculate, etc. And it's been quite successful. It's attracted maybe $200 million of uh, worth of, of value. Uh, that's how much is currently locked up. And it's given birth to, to dozens of uh, protocols. So this is one vision. And, and I think this will continue to, to develop unless there's some uh, uh, you know, re regulatory enforcement, which, which we have not yet seen. Uh, the second vision is you have traditional financial providers, financial services providers like the ICE, the parent company of the New York Stock Exchange, and they have launched a new market for futures and for options where the underlying asset is Bitcoin that is physically settled. Similarly, we have seen the CME launch futures and options that are cash settled where the underlying is Bitcoin. So this is another uh, vision of uh, DeFi or, or decentralized finance where traditional institutions get involved in, in investing and trading and ma making markets in some of these new digital uh, coins. And then the third uh, DeFi vision, which is where, where, where I work and what I'm most interested in, is how do we take these public permissionless systems and use them so that we can build value-added financial services on top of them? And, and one example is fiat-backed stablecoins. We have also seen real estate-backed stablecoins and, and uh, uh, traditional bond issuances where instead of on paper or instead of a traditional digital ledger, they're, they're, they're on top of a public permissionless ledger. And I think this is where, where the true potential lies to, to, to realize 
cost savings on building and operating financial services. I'll pick you up on the uh, the Fiat, uh, on the Fiat uh, back stablecoins in a second because uh, I wanted to ask you about that. But do you think everyone in the industry is fully aware of the importance in the context of the investment and, and banking world? I would I would speculate that most people are not really looking into this space and and are not aware of the potential. Uh, the FCA did a study or commissioned a study last year, and they found that only about 3% of uh, people are somehow in the United Kingdom are somehow involved in this space. So 97% of the general population doesn't know about this and is not involved. And I would argue in the investment management profession, the percentage might be even higher. Right. Now, as I said, just picking up on, on what you just mentioned there, because I, you know, obviously before this uh, this interview, I looked on your company website. You described Moneyfold as the home of regulated fiat-backed stablecoins. So, can you describe exactly what that means, and, and maybe share an example of how you're working with clients to help them make, you know, secure electronic payments in in the UK? Absolutely. If you want to transact with Bitcoin or or Ether or other cryptocurrencies, that's already possible. But if you want to use the same technology and get the same benefits but uh, limit yourself to, to pounds and euros and other national currencies, it's, it's a very tricky proposition. So we have come up with a way to do it safely and securely so that you can have pounds on a public permissionless blockchain. So if I want to send you pounds rather than making a bank transfer or, or paying by card where you need to have the uh, point of sale terminal to, to collect the card payment, I can send coins from, from my wallet on my phone to your wallet on your phone and it happens in real time and it's available 24-7 near, near immediate settlement and we don't need any financial intermediaries. And, and this is already possible with Bitcoin. We make it possible with pounds and euros and other national currencies. And where we're helping clients with uh, specifically with the pound and euro stable coins is when, when you have these crypto card products where, where customers are able to convert their cryptocurrencies and, and into pounds and euros and put them directly onto a debit card so they can go and spend it in the shop, by forcing all of those transactions to go through our stable coin, you're able to take advantage of a functionality called atomic swaps. So the, the exchange either happens or doesn't happen. And, and, and this helps reduce counterparty default risk it helps the conversion agent to to meet their regulatory obligations and it makes it very easier from a regulatory uh, compliance perspective to monitor the flows and 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 apply all of the regular aml and cft monitoring that's really interesting so what about your prediction for the future in this space then so I believe the first vision of DeFi, which I explained, the un unregulated crazy crypto DeFi, I think that will continue to go on for a while uh, because it's exciting. There's a lot of uh, new talent involved. And so I think that will go on for some time. The legal and regulatory questions, it's, there is some uncertainty how, how, whether this will be allowed to continue or not. And I think we will see more and more stable coins launched throughout the world. And I think we will continue to see uh, those stable coins being used to build new value-added platforms. For example, if you want to build a lending platform and take advantage of the benefits of blockchain technology, you can use that using our stable coins. If you want, if you want to launch the next generation of uh, exchange services that, that have no counterparty default risk, you can use our stable coins for the payment leg, and you can use bond stable coins, equity stable coins, real estate stable coins for the asset settlement leg. 
And, and these, this is an area that the Bank of England is directly looking into and, and we're participating in uh, those conversations. So I think next two, three to five years, we're going to see a lot more development in, in this space. You shared a lot of information in, in, in obviously a short amount of time. So if people wanted to find out a bit more about blockchain and, and cryptocurrency, where's the best place for them to go? It really depends on your level of interest and level of uh, expertise. Uh, there are a number of university courses around the world that provide you know, beginner level courses all the way to advanced software development. There's a lot of academic research in this space. Uh, also, in, in London, there is the Coin Scrum and the Ethereum Meetup events, and there are similar events at many cities all around the world, and they tend to talk to each other. So attending those events, you can meet the, the people who are actually working on these things, and you can make a value judgment as to whether it's something you're interested in or not. Uh, specifically on the topic of fiat stablecoins, uh, you can always reach out to me. You can, you can uh, check our contact details on our website, www moneyfold.co.uk that's moneyfold as in fold your money <laughs> .co.uk the, the old the old style money not the not the crypto stuff <laughs> yes we joke that uh, we, we fold your money not your laundry that's great uh, Nicola thank you uh, so much for uh, joining the podcast and uh, and sharing all that information with us my pleasure you're listening to the C-Suite Podcast. To listen to all previous shows in the series, you can either visit csuitepodcast.com, follow us on SoundCloud, or subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or in any one of your favorite podcast apps. Please do give us a positive rating and review when you do. I'm now joined by Julia Spack, a quantitative strategies specialist at Saracen and Partners to talk about machine learning in practice. Uh, Julia, let's set the scene here by understanding what the importance is of AI and machine learning for asset management. Uh, thank you so much, Russell, for this opportunity. So um, machine learning methods have been remarkably successful for a wide range of applications. Uh, for example, in pattern, image, voice recognition, and notably, our industry is actually quite behind other fields. Therefore, AI provides significant opportunity for our industry and for asset management farm. We see already many farms successfully applying uh, some of these technologies, especially in areas such as execution and trading, operations, client reporting, also data analysis for ESG um, performance assessment, among many other use cases. The strength of machine learning is uh, in its ability to analyze complex relationships, um, large and unstructured data sets. And financial markets are nonlinear, complex systems of interrelated variables, and therefore machine learning can help identify these complex relationships in high-dimensional space, uh, identify input-output relationship in hierarchical, threshold, non-continuous linkages. And also it can deal better with outliers, uh, which is a um, strong advantage over traditional statistical models. However, uh, despite all this strength, there are some serious caveats that we have to consider when applying machine learning in investment strategies, especially in forecasting of financial time series, which we, I guess, uh, will discuss in more depth in subsequent questions. Yeah, well, well let's move on to that then, because I, I wanted to ask in terms of challenges, what, what's going to need to be overcome before we see the real benefits of machine learning in practice? Yeah, there are quite a few uh, challenges. 
uh, and uh, several challenges with application of uh, machine learning to financial markets time series. Firstly, uh, many machine learning methods were developed originally in data sets such as image or pattern recognition, which are quite unlike financial time series data. And usual machine learning modeling assumptions that the sample is contains independent and identically distributed data, or IID assumption for short, normally doesn't really hold in uh, financial data. So we have a methodological problem. In a nutshell, financial time series are non-stationary. They are serially correlated. There is cross-sectional dependencies, and there are very frequent switches in market regimes. And we also have very low signal-to-noise rates. So as a result, it is not difficult at all to find a model with excellent predictive power in sample, but uh, the model completely fails out of sample. So in other words, overfitting is uh, a real problem. Uh, also, uh, one also needs to think whether machine learning algo is actually a right tool to the problem and data at hand. So many uh, image recognition problems relied on millions of images to train an algorithm to correctly identify objects. We don't actually have such data abundance in financial markets. Of course, one can find uh, financial time series going back to 19th century or earlier, but usually older time series doesn't really add value because of the presence of regime changes and structural breaks in the data. Some financial data is released quarterly. So even if we have 10 years, um, that would still yield uh, 40 observations, which is by no means enough to train and test a machine learning algorithm. Another important issue is explainability of uh, AI models. This remains a significant challenge as many machine learning models act as a black box. So explainability is being able to quite literally explain what is going on. Researchers, therefore, should make use of all available uh, techniques such as sharp values, uh, relative feature importance, um, partial dependencies to explain, um, be able to understand which variables are responsible for predictions that the model makes. Nevertheless, I'd like to conclude this um, question with a very positive note because we've observed a lot of uh, excitement about machine learning in our industry over the last several years. And we uh, observe machine learning community is growing and becoming more open source, which means offering new techniques and increasing learning efficiencies. Therefore, I have no doubt that machine learning algos and their use cases in our industry will also evolve and get better over time. Just picking up on um, what you said just a little bit earlier there about financial data you know, is non-stationary. Can you explain to our listeners about overfitting and also how you prevent it? So overfitting occurs when model is too closely or exactly fitting a particular data set. So an overfitted model normally contains more parameters than the data actually justified. And as I alluded to earlier, financial data has a very low signal to noise ratio. Noise is random, so you cannot forecast random data. So if you build a model that produces forecast out of noise, you have a problem. Therefore, uh, researchers should have uh, or should take a special care when building models, um, machine learning models in financial markets. And here also uh, is very important to consider sort of the main expertise. So you can't just throw uh, sort of data science skills without taking a context of financial markets. So 
the practices which uh, researchers in, in our industry um, use or should use are regularization, cross-validation, ensemble learning, and of course, focus on causal inference, concept drift in features engineering and selection to ensure that the models are robust and meaningful. Right. And I know one of the other things you were going to talk about in your presentation at the conference was the theory of reflexivity. Could you just briefly touch on that too? Oh, absolutely. The theory of reflexivity maintains that a two-way feedback loop exists. So in essence, it suggests that mispricing uh, in asset prices uh, may disappear or get arbitraged away after being identified. So by exploiting the information in the forecast, a researcher can affect the future price. So this reflexivity of financial markets makes the whole problem of uh, learning about investing fundamentally different from machine learning application where, for example, a model is uh, having a task to distinguish faces of cats and dogs which would not change by the fact that they were recognized in image recognition problem. Therefore, machine learning techniques are best to be applied in in markets or in time series data sets which are not subject to reflexivity dynamics. Excellent. And so to, um, to finish off then, what other areas could machine learning make a difference with investing, do you think? Well, there are three key pillars to investment management, security selection, portfolio construction, and sort of slash optimization and execution, which in quant investing are normally integrated with risk management as well. So as I mentioned earlier, machine learning is already very successfully uh, applied in uh, by, by some brokers and some investment firms in, in execution and trading. Um, there are significant opportunities in portfolio construction and optimization, and uh, this area still remains under-researched and uh, provides a lot of exciting opportunities for future research. And I'd like to add also that uh, we in our industry have witnessed two very, very strong trends. Uh, That is significant growth of uh, alternative data and also ESG investing. And I think machine learning uh, with its strengths, which I outlined earlier, provides very, very strong opportunities for making use of alternative data and for better assessment of companies in terms of uh, their ESG performance. That's great. Um, Julia, thank you so much for all that information and for uh, joining the podcast. Thank you. It was my pleasure. So I'm now joined by Jeff Horrell, Director of Innovation at Refinitiv. Uh, Jeff was due to be taking part in a panel session discussing uh, fintech alliances. So that's what we're going to chat about now. But uh, Jeff, perhaps we can just start by getting a quick intro to Refinitiv and where your uh, Refinitiv Labs team uh, sits within the organisation. Yeah, absolutely. So Refinitiv is a global provider of data, of workflow tools for financial professionals, and also of um, a trading infrastructure. Um, and you know we operate in you know, over 100 countries around the world. And even though we're a relatively new name as, as an institution, we've been around for over 150 years. So uh, many of your listeners will be using our data uh, in their back office, middle office, front office to help them make you know, decisions um, for their investments and, and risk analysis. Um, and, and the team that I uh, manage, which is Refinitiv Labs, based in London, it's an innovation team. So we have uh, a group of full-stack engineers, of data scientists, but also of user experience and product designers 
And, you know, we work uh, very closely with our business units, with our strategy team. In actual fact, the Innovation Labs is part of our strategy and our M&A group uh, within Refinitiv. And we have a, uh, an ecosystem uh, function as well. So we look and scan the ecosystem from emerging technologies and up and coming um, fintech partners. And so we work very closely with um, our businesses to try and find new opportunities, areas that they think they see potential growth. Uh, our business uh, leaders think they see potential growth. And we try to sort of de-risk that, that opportunity by either doing a project in the labs or by working uh, with partners. So just, just explain then in a little bit more detail how Refinitiv partners with fintech companies and what you're looking for in particular. So I think this is interesting and I'm happy to share our experience here because I think many others from an innovation or um, incubator type you know, uh, background have, have, have tried a few different approaches to alliances with, with fintech partners. So a few years ago, we, we had a fund and we ran that fund out of technology to sort of look for interesting uh, technology firms, uh, emerging technology groups, and sort of making a whole range of different sort of seed investments into those companies. And, you know, I think that was, that helped us to stay close to some of that technology, but it didn't really work uh, for either side as well as we would have liked because it didn't really flow through from our strategy. And, you know, what we've really focused on now is, Let's get that strategic alignment with our business. So that might be for our wealth business. It could be from our, our, our trading uh, business or our investment management business. You know, what are they trying to do? What are the gaps in their proposition and their business that they're trying to fill? Uh, and what are the areas that they want to partner with to perhaps um, de-risk the exploration of that new area? Um, and so then we focus very specifically proactively looking in those areas to find uh, partners rather than sort of being bombarded by lots and lots of sort of inbound requests uh, from, from everyone who's out, out, out there. So it's quite a shift from the technology run approach to a strategic uh, top-down approach. And what about from the fintech's point of view then? What, what are they looking for from the, uh, the partnerships? So the number one reason everybody comes to Refinitiv is for our data. So, you know, if you're a fintech and you want to build a proof of concept or you want to kind of showcase what you can do to one of your um, banking uh, customers or investment customers, you need data. And, of course, that's what we have, the Refinitiv. So the great thing that we can bring to any um, uh, fintech is the data. So whether that's um, traditional market data, investment data, or financial um, uh, crime data set for, for financial crime screening, um, you name it, we probably have have that data set. So from that point of view, that's a, a benefit to them. And also we, we like to think, you know, we provide a, a, an advisory perspective. You know, if you're trying to build an enterprise business to business uh, company in the, the financial industry, that's what we are, right? That's what Refinitiv is. And I think we have a lot of experience around commercial models, around different approaches for um, structuring deals. Uh, and so we provide some of that advice. And we also provide, you know, access uh, to customers. So we have, as I said, you know, pretty much every uh, financial institution in, in, in the planet has some kind of relationship with, with Refinitiv. So we can provide some access to, to customers as well. Um, so that's, that's kind of what we are good at doing. And I guess, you know, what the fintechs say to us, well, that's great, but, you know, are you going to slow us down or are you going to speed us up? And, you know, that's always a challenge. You know, 
working with a big company or a big company, we can be difficult to work with because of the scale, but that's where the labs comes in. So we help with a bit of that agility to help um, uh, work with uh, fintech. So we don't we speed them up and, and, and don't slow them down. Can you actually share some examples at all? And you know, can you mention any companies that you've done alliances with and, and you know, why they're working so well? Yeah, look, I'm happy to. Um, I think one that, um, I mean, I, I'm really excited about this area is, you know, we looked at the whole area of digital identity for our, um, our risk business. And that was an area we thought, you know, should we get into that? Should we get into that area ourselves? But we found a fantastic partner uh, with Truview uh, for digital identity. And it really helped us bring our strength, which is our, our world check data for PEPs and financial crime uh, screening, with their technology in terms of you know, individual uh, customer onboarding and, and, and verification of, of documentation and so on in a really uh, neat way and putting their tech and our data, and, but our, um, our market reach uh, and our, our sort of customer footprint together has been a really good and successful partnership there. Another one, which I think, again, in a, in a market that we thought is big growth potential, but we wanted to, again, rather than sort of dive headfirst in ourselves and deal with every single uh, alternative data provider in the investment management space, we found a great partner with Battlefin, and we actually uh, invested uh, you know, minority investment into Battlefin, and so their success and our success are aligned. And um, what Battlefin does is they are a marketplace for alternative data providers, bring their data in, make that data available for testing and validation. Um, and so hedge funds, investment managers can, can get a sense of what data is out there. And again, what we've provided is our data alongside the alternative data so that people can compare and contrast the old data approach versus the traditional data approach and link those two together to kind of get the best of, of both worlds. So that was another minority investment um, in investment management. And then in, in wealth management and in our, I mean, again, in, in portfolio management uh, capabilities, it, it was one of these things, you know, as a big firm, and, and I'm sure many of the, the listeners who work for investment banks will say that we always think we can build, you know, technical solutions ourselves. And, and we were thinking, you know, should we build a brand new portfolio back end of managing all the client data um, and managing all of the uh, portfolios and lists? So making that information available in our ICON workflow solution. And what we found was a partner called Finborn, a London-based um, firm that um, is, is just going on uh, strength after strength. And, you know, they are not just, we're not just investing in them, but they're actually built a core part of our infrastructure for us. Uh, and again, together, going to customers, they haven't, we're not just working alongside them, but they've actually built a core part of infrastructure for, for us at Refinitiv. So, you know, we've really taken a, quite a different approach in each of those ones, really embedding those alliances as a core part of our business. And I think it's been, been a really successful one. And, and most recently, we just invested in a company called Module Q. Uh, module Q provides an intelligent agent, again, feeding on our data that plugged into Microsoft Teams and provides a kind of intelligent uh, service for business professionals in the sort of business intelligence and strategy uh, functions uh, across, our, uh, across our customer base. Um, and again, fantastic AI company, uh, but they need our data uh, to power their solutions. So as you can see, there's a broad range of companies 
not just in uh, the UK, but uh, you know, in the US as well, and uh, across a, a different vertical. So investment management, wealth management, um, you know, risk. So where we look at all those different areas. And so if you're aligned with our business uh, focus, then there's a much more uh, chance of us being interested in you as, as, as a fintech. Uh, and the more that you can uh, add to our existing propositions, then the more likely a successful partnership. So obviously a few success stories there. I mean, I'm guessing it doesn't always go to plan. What, you know, can you share some examples of things when it hasn't gone quite right? And also what, what you know, the challenges you know, involved in taking this approach? I mean, I think, you know, if you're trying to do uh, a smaller number of more uh, significant alliances, then getting the right partner is very important. And I think what's ha- what hasn't gone to plan in the past is, as I said, we've had that technology-led approach. You know, we made a lot of investments in sort of early stage uh, blockchain and, and DLT type companies. And, you know, there really wasn't a clear enough business driver. Um, they're relatively immature. You know, they hadn't been screened or didn't have existing uh, banking uh, backers. Um, and so that's, that was, a, you know, a challenge. I think that, that didn't work well. And we also, we probably made 10 or 15 investments and it was just too many for what at the time was a very small team to really monitor and make a difference uh, with, those, with those firms. Um, and I think the other thing that, that, that we've struggled with is occasionally, you know, we, we, we do have an open platform, right? So we encourage companies to partner with us. But if you're a small company and you're coming onto our platform and want to use us to drive um, scale in reaching all of our customers, the challenge is if you're a very niche offering and it's perhaps a complex set of analytics, to getting that message out is difficult. So in actual fact, often we've said to, to, to fintech companies, you know, don't, use, don't think of us as a distribution partner. You know, think of us as how can you embed that solution again into our, our core offering? Because the time that it takes and, and, and the, the level of sophistication to articulate the the value proposition of a really niche value proposition. That's something that often is better for us is maybe supply you with the data and, and, and that kind of partnership rather than trying to bring you on board. And as I said, perhaps slow you down with this sort of large um, uh, bureaucracy that, that um, any, any large company has. So some things we've learned from and, and, and tried to adapt. And I think, you know, we're pleased with the approach that we, that we, that we're taking now. And what about looking forward? What does the, uh, the future hold in terms of FinTech alliances? So again, I think when we, when we actually think about fintech, we don't say fintech, we say emerging technologies. And what we look at is, you know, what's on the horizon that's coming out of academia, what's coming out of big, big tech, you know, the big cloud providers and other technology firms. And so, for example, we have a real focus on uh, natural language processing. And there, you know, some of the biggest innovations are coming out of Google, uh, uh, Facebook, um, you know, open AI, different, different groups. So we look at the, those areas as well in terms of you, you, you can't just pick individual fintech firms. You have to look at, well, what is their competitive differentiation going to be against some of those massive uh, big technology firms who have the resources and the research teams to really do some cutting edge work. So the benefit normally is not in some of the core technology, but in the domain expertise and the fit with either they've got people who've come from the investment industry and are trying to solve a very specific problem. That seems to be where, where fintechs can be successful. 
uh, and, and firms who are focused too broadly on generic technology or generic solutions, we think that, again, compared to the kind of big tech juggernauts, it's hard to compete there. So that's something that we're looking at very closely. Um, and the speed of acceleration in, in machine learning um, and machine learning platforms is something we're very interested in. Um, and so those are the kind of top things that we're looking at. Um, and I guess the last thing in terms of business areas, we're really interested in the area of sustainability and, and climate. Uh, and we're really looking out for firms that are working in, in that kind of area because we think that's going to be one of the big trends uh, for the next, the next, uh, next little while. So that's kind of what we're looking, looking at right now and, and what we see uh, in the future. That's great. Jeff, if um, listeners want to find out any more information around this topic, can you point them to uh, any resources? So yes, yeah, so you can look up um, what we do in the Refinitive Labs. So if you search for Refinitive Labs, you'll get that section on the Refinitive.com uh, um, web, website. We also have a great um, series of blogs on everything from machine learning to sustainability and, and certainly also mentions many of the, the partnerships that we have. Um, and that's called the Perspectives uh, section uh, of our blog. And if you go to Refinitive.com, you'll find that information there. Um, and if anyone has any questions and, and wants to reach out to, to me or the rest of the Refinitive team, I'm sure we'd be happy to, to hear from you. That's tremendous. Uh, Jeff Porrell, thank you so much for uh, joining the podcast. Thanks, Russ. Well, that in fact wraps up this first of two episodes for the CFA UK FinTech Forum. So thanks again to all my guests who, despite the conference being cancelled, still took the time to join us online to record their interviews. So that's Richard Davis and Holly Black, Nikola Chuparov, Julia Spack, and of course, Jeff Horrell just now. Thanks also to the team at CFA UK for inviting us to interview all their speakers again. Uh, Don't forget, if you want to find out any information about CFA UK or contact them, then the web address is simply simply cfauk.org. There'll be a second episode to follow this where we'll be covering topics including the future of regtech, emerging ecosystems in wealth management and alternative data, as well as finding out about the impact investment app ticker. So make sure you look out for that on your podcast feed. Uh, In the meantime, we hope you've got a lot out of this episode and we'd love to hear any comments you may have on the topic of fintech. Uh, So if you'd like to contribute to the discussion, you can do that on our Facebook page, Twitter feed or LinkedIn and Instagram pages which are all linked from the top of the website at csuitepodcast.com where you'll also find all our previous shows and supporting show notes plus links to where you can subscribe for automatic downloads of each episode via your favorite podcast app and if you've enjoyed the podcast please do give us a positive rating and review. Uh, Finally if you'd like to get in touch with the show you can do that via the contact form on the website as well or connect with me on Twitter using at Ross Goldsmith or you can find me on LinkedIn but for now thanks for listening and goodbye. (laughs) 